You can't chase a bucket of kale with a Big Mac. Sometimes what we're not eating is way more important than what we're eating because even though you're going to eat that nutritional food that's going to give you nutrients and help your brain and help your gut-brain connection and give you energy, it still may not be able to offset the damage done by the Big Mac you had a couple hours ago. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving this show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. You just heard it. A Big Mac Attack. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how that Big Mac really attacks your health. I'm going to be joined by the authors of this incredible book called Body on Fire, Doctors Monica Agarwal and Jyothi Rao. We will be exploring on the show today, inflammation, inflammation and the toll that it can take on your health. And we're going to be talking about the stressors that cause it talking about poor diet. It's not just a Big Mac that'll cause inflammation. Oh, no, no, no. And also how your body can become inflamed just by not getting enough sleep. You're not getting enough sleep or your sleep is interrupted. How your body can become inflamed because of that or being sedentary, too much time in front of the computer, too much time in front of the TV. How just sitting there can cause inflammation in your body. We're going to be learning how that inflammation then can trigger the chronic diseases that are just flat out plaguing our society and hurting our loved ones. And in some cases, maybe you're hearing this right now, you have one and you're battling it as we speak, trying to get your health back on track. We're going to be talking about that. But about getting your health back on track, we are indeed flipping the script on inflammation. We're going to be talking about having an honest assessment of your health. It takes a conversation with yourself, really. So many of us think that we have this thing under control. We have this perfect diet. But I think for the majority of us, though, there's certainly room for improvement. So how do we figure out where that room for improvement actually lies? We're going to find that out with the good doctors and... Here's where the fun really begins. We will be speaking about the foods that reduce inflammation and nurture a healthy body. And a big part of that conversation centers around spices. And you should hear about the spices that Dr. Agarwal adds to her tea. I call it a serious tea, as you will hear, because it is serious. It gives the tea a serious kick while also kicking inflammation to the curb. Awesome, awesome additions to the tea. So let's go ahead and raise our health IQs and lower our inflammation right now as we extinguish our body on fire. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Very excited now to be joined by the authors of this fantastic book by the name of Body on Fire. So appropriate for what it is that we're going to be discussing today. Please welcome Drs. Monica Agarwal and Jyothi Rao to the show. Thank you both so very much for being here. So glad to be here. Thanks so much. Inflammation. Inflammation, Monica, let's start with you. Inflammation is such a a hot topic, especially in the plant-based community, the nutrition community. We hear a lot about it, especially during the pandemic. I think a lot of people got introduced to the concept of inflammation for the first time. And here on the show, we talk a lot about nutrition and the role that food plays in terms of how your body reacts, the inflammatory response. I want to start by kind of painting a picture. The standard American diet, full of fat, full of salt, full of fried foods. So in terms of inflammation, how does your body react to just eating something like a Big Mac? Yeah, so uh, good questions. Um, So 
first, let me explain to you what I think inflammation, how I define or think about inflammation. So what I always think about when people ask me, what exactly is inflammation is that inflammation is your body's mad at you. So it means that you're doing something to irritate the body. And um, that's what triggers inflammation. And usually that's an imbalance in your body. That's an imbalance between the stresses in your body and the resources in your body. So that could be um, that could be lots of things. So uh, a lot of times it's food, but it could also be stress, emotional stress, work stress. Um, it could also be um, lack of activity. It could be a pain. It could be a food that you eat. Um, it could be um, uh, so uh, sun exposure or radio or too much noise, all of those sort of sources of demands and stresses on your body. And when there's too much stress and not enough resource or time for recovery, there's this imbalance which causes, as causes inflammation. So one of the ones that we love to talk about the most is food because food typically, typically causes a load of inflammation because we don't have the most optimal diet. Um, and so, um, um, the Big Mac conversation, well, the Big Mac is loaded with all sorts of things. And so, um, there's lots of dairy, there's lots of fat, there's lots of saturated fat. Uh, there's lots of sodium, there's processing, um, there's the bun, which has refined carbohydrates, and all of those kind of foods uh, are not what your body wants to eat. And so creates a uh, state of or a milieu or sort of an unhappy place for your body. So imagine if your body, if these the foods go into your body, and they not only will make your cholesterol go up, they will make your sugars go up and put you at risk for diabetes. They trigger leptin intolerance or leptin resistance, which prevents you from feeling full. They also um, they also go into your gut and they change your gut flora, which then puts you at risk for a leaky gut and and then that triggers inflammation. So there's so many things that uh, that we could talk about related to that, but that's sort of the nutshell. Yes, does a Big Mac cause inflammation? Oh yeah. Uh, would I love you not to eat a Big Mac ever? Oh yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Rao, let's let's contrast that. So we, we heard just, you know, how inflammatory the Big Mac can be. But say somebody then were to eat a black bean burger, whole food, plant-based, really healthy, you know, veggie burger there. How much differently would the body react to that compared to what we just heard when you go through the drive-thru? Yeah, that's a great question. One thing I wanted to just add to Dr. Agarwal's comment was that there, you know, I think people just need to understand how they feel, you know, emotionally and energetically when they eat something. I think that really tells us a lot of what the food is doing for us. For example, you might get a short-term happy spot, dopamine release, something energy for transient piece of period of time when you eat something that has saturated fats and all of those other, um, you know, inflammatory type foods. But within two hours, within three hours, within a short period of time, you're going to feel that crash, that lull, that that low mood, the energy's down, you're going to get hungry again in a couple hours. And I want people to kind of think about that pattern, because honestly, I do feel you can't chase a bucket of kale with the Big Mac. You can't reverse what you've done with the Big Mac by eating a lot of kale. So what that means really is, is be conscientious of what you put in the mouth in the first place. Sometimes what we're not eating is way more important than what we're eating, because even though you're going to eat that nutritional food, that's going to give you nutrients and help your brain and help your gut brain connection and give you energy. It still may not be able to offset the damage done by the Big Mac you had a couple hours ago, right? So there's potential for each food to be highly energizing clear up your brain. Sometimes when we eat foods, we get a foggy brain. It took me the longest time to figure out that, you know, my food was making me tired. I would have loads of dairy, at, at, you know, years ago when I was eating the stuff and I kind of found my path through this. I didn't even know that that was what was making me tired because I just assumed eating lunch after lunch, everyone gets that postprandial kind of just a little bit of sleepiness and fatigue. And then one week I just stopped eating it for whatever reason. And I didn't have that that brain fog, that kind of fatigue, and it kind of helped me put two and two together. So even if I had my, you know, like a yogurt with um, kale, if I didn't have the yogurt in the first place, I would be much better off. So that's kind of the trend that I, I, I think that people sometimes don't feel, oh, I had a salad, and it didn't make me feel 
as good. Well, because maybe before that you had a burger and it's still, you know, the damage is being done still. So I do think that food has the potential for creating the opposite effect, but it also really depends on how much that ratio is that you're doing in order for you to kind of feel it intrinsically. And Dr. Actually, Ad, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. Actually, it's a good point that you make. There was a study done at the University of Maryland, which is a really cool one, um, where they gave people like this McDonald's meal and they gave them this happy meal and they looked at the blood flesh, the blood vessels um, through an ultrasound uh, a reaction, a reactivity study where they were basically seeing how, how was your blood vessels ability to open and close. And what they found was that people within four hours of eating that sort of happy meal, McDonald's type of meal, they had decreased reactivity. In other words, that blood vessel was less compliant to movement, which is actually not a good thing. Remember our blood vessels need to be compliant so that when we need to exercise, they can dilate and blood can go out. Uh, to the rest of the body, uh, and they need to be able to close down when the, uh, you know when um, we're dehydrated or when we uh, our blood pressures are low or when we're sick. We have to be able to clamp down so that we can bring better blood flow back to the heart. So all of those things are important, and you lose that vaso reactivity or that ability of that blood vessel to sort of be compliant like that when we eat those kind of foods. Well, let's talk about, let's stick with you, Dr. Ackerwall. Let's talk about then the cumulative effect, the aggregate effect of this. So you were just talking about that study done at the University of Maryland, looking at what happens after one meal. Well, what happens after, you know, 10 years worth yeah. of meals? I mean, what kind of inflammation are we talking about then versus a single meal? Well, that's exactly the most important part of the point is that one time, you know, one, one, even one uh, impact or one intake of a bad or unhealthy meal, arguably, if you're healthy all of the time, isn't going to have nearly the impact uh, that a person who's having chronically eating those kind of poor foods. So remember, if you have that imbalance between all the stresses and your resources, and you're eating all those poor foods that are bad for your body and bad for your gut, then you're going to have all this sort of chronic inflammation. And so you're going to cause the gut flora to change. And there's studies that show, for instance, that if you eat high amounts of fiber, and so that comes from loads of plants, or if you eat lots of greens, that you're actually going to change your gut flora um, so that it becomes less prone to leaky gut. Now, that connection between healthy gut flora and leaky gut is still being hashed out, uh, admittedly. But there seems to be a correlation that certain diseases are associated with certain gut flora um, and the poor diet is associated with poor types of gut bugs or gut flora, which is then associated with certain types of chronic illnesses. And so long-term uh, poor, poor diet makes those changes, which we think triggers inflammation, which changes those, makes unhappy gut flora. And all of those things are associated with more chronic illness. Remember also that, you know, you don't, everybody gets, uh, there are many manifestations of inflammation. So there's something genetic predisposition, and then there's, then there's manifestation of the illness. Like for instance, for many of you know my story, which is that I have advanced rheumatoid arthritis and I developed that advanced rheumatoid arthritis after I had my third child. Well, I don't genetically, interestingly, no one in my family has it, but I, for some reason, have a genetic predisposition to rheumatoid arthritis. But it didn't come on my whole life until I had my third kid. And so the hormonal changes of pregnancy often triggers for, in, um, for gene expression, um, but also sort of lifestyle. And so remember, there's the gene and then there's the epigenetics, which is the what happens to that gene um, or what you do to that gene that can cause manifestation of that gene. So I had expression of that gene sort of after months and, and months of having three kids under four, not sleeping well, eating really poorly, lack of activity, which then triggered that gene to come on and be triggered and trigger inflammation. But for me, I developed rheumatoid arthritis because I had a genetic predisposition for, but for other people, it might be type one diabetes or lupus or or Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease or heart disease, which people don't realize is that heart disease is an extremely inflammatory process. And as a cardiologist, something I deal with every day. And, and, and that's, that's a big one. And epigenetics, my ears always perk up when that gets mentioned on the show. I love it so much how you can have identical twins. 
and they lead two completely different lifestyles and you have two completely different health outcomes. It, it just never ceases to amaze me. Um, let's talk yeah. about the time that we're living in. I mean, as we record this, we are still in the midst of a pandemic. Stress has become perhaps at an all-time high. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the effect that that then can have on the stress. So you have these mental uh, stressors that you have, but how does that then manifest into physical symptoms with um, inflammation? Um, Dr. Rao, if you could talk to us a little bit about that. We yeah, would this, is, this is one area I'm really passionate about because as an internist, you know, I see a lot of chronic illnesses and Oftentimes, even with things like, you know, weight, where people are saying, I'm eating so well, and I don't know what's going on. I'm having all these issues, and I eat so well. And so the problem is lifestyle matters. And so the stress that we feel can change our brain activity, the gut brain connection is real. So our anxiety, our negative thoughts, our depression can also, we know this from studies that show that it can increase inflammatory markers in the body. So our mind body connection is huge. And so that is why when we they do calming things, where we support that parasympathetic system with rest and digest type of issues, when we focus on that rest part, sleep promotion, stress reduction with mind-body techniques like yoga and meditation, and movement actually, sitting all day is actually really stressful for us. Um, all those negative thoughts are kind of amplified in this current situation because it can lead to say infl inflammation, it can change our gut microbiome, which can turn on genes that have been um, turned off, which can then increase inflammation in our whole body. And some person that can look like a headache and somebody else it can look like a rash and other people can look like full-blown um, manifestation of a genetically predisposed illness. So what we really want to try to, uh, you know, emphasize with the book is that, yes, food absolutely, absolutely matters. And you should be as vigilant as possible with good high nutrient foods, plant-based foods, and but also sleep and calming your mind. It can definitely make an impact on how quickly you heal through things because it creates resilience in our body. And we want to be resilient. We want to be able to get through this year and bounce back with our health and not have an immune system. It matters because our immune system is directly linked. Our cortisol levels directly linked to our immune system and how well we will be able to combat this, this virus if we were exposed to it, as well as deal with all the other complications of not seeing our friends and the loneliness and having, you know, working from home all day and kind of sitting in a chair and not moving as much. So all of these things are very stressful, which can change the gut microbiome, that can change our cortisol levels, it can increase that, and it can even lead to things that can lead to leaky gut, which can increase whole body inflammation. I want to stick with you and ask kind of a follow-up to that. We were talking a little bit about epigenetics. Let me throw a scenario at you, okay? We'll use the identical twins again. But let's say one has kind of a cushy work-from-home kind of job right now. The other is a frontline worker in the fight against the pandemic. Let's just say that they are a doctor in a hospital who is working in intensive care, and this is their entire life and has been for the last nine months. Identical twins eating the same diet, can't say that they're getting the same amount of sleep. I don't think that that's feasible given the nature of the different jobs, but everything else is the same except for that level of stress in their lives. How different would the levels of inflammation be in their bodies, Dr. Rao? I mean, I think this is done through um, some of the studies. I don't know firsthand about a study where you're keeping twins um, with the same diet it, within different lifestyle, but there are twin studies that have looked at the role of stress whether it's um, lifestyle changes, like one smokes, the other one doesn't smoke, one has better sleep patterns than the other ones. But if we look at, say, the presidents, right? So you look at the stress of being the president of the United States, and they looked at four years later, they found that sometimes the pattern of aging reflected something on the equivalent of eight years, eight you know, chronological, but biological years, as opposed to just growing and growing older by four. I do think that stress of that caliber has the potential to age you faster. So whether you're looking at the telomeres or you're looking at markers of inflammation in the body, body composition, fat mass ratios, I do think that there is going to be a consequence if that person who is you know, so stressed out because they're frontline and they're not sleeping and they're maybe making not such great food choices, they're not getting you know ability to move with exercise or meditate or do those kind of things, 
absolutely, I feel like their body would age faster. And then when you age, you know, aging is a risk factor for a lot of chronic illness, um, including cancer. So I do think your body's going to be that much more susceptible to gaining. I mean, having things happen to your body, which you can't fight off because your immune system is now trying to, you're always in fight or flight mode and you can't actually pause to heal yourself. Dr. Agarwal, we know that with chronic illnesses, some of them can be improved, even reversed, whether it be diabetes or heart disease with a whole food plant-based diet. But specific to what we just heard with that accelerated aging, I mean, is there any way to kind of, I guess, turn back the hands of time and undo the damage that we've done in that, you know, really stressful, in this case, four-year cycle? You know, I don't, you know, I don't know if we know the answer to that question directly. Uh, you know, we think that we think uh, that we will first, we will halt progression. Um, will we reverse it? I mean, that's sort of the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal. I mean, there's a lot of theories about a lot of changes that can trigger reversal, but I don't know if we know for sure. And so I think more studies need to be done on that. I think, I think the way to always tell people to think about this is that there's, only good things that can come from a lifestyle change, a healthy change, eating cleaner, being more, uh, working on your optimism, your activity, decreasing stress. Um, there's only good things that can happen. So why wouldn't you do them? Right? So you're at least halting or, or, or re and reversing the disease. Now are we reversing aging too? Well, conceptually you are right. Because if you don't have, you reverse your diabetes and then you, then you don't get the end stage complications of diabetes. Well, one some of which is myocardial infarction or heart attack, then in concept, you are affecting change by just decreasing that illness and the, the end stage sequelae that come from an illness like that. So the answer is yes, but I also know, I don't know, is also the answer because I don't know in terms of telomeres. I don't know if we know that answer. Well, let's talk about sleep here for a minute, uh, Dr. Agarwal. Um, clearly, when you're talking about de-stressing yourself, I think making sure that you're getting a good night's rest is going to be critical for that. Suppose somebody's only getting four hours of rest a night compared to the eight that you, you know, you and I should strive to get. Yeah. What does that do to the body in terms of inflammation? Sure. So the average adult should sleep between seven and nine hours per night. Um, and that is not done um, by most people. When we ask this and when we do talks, it's always amazing to hear how many people are sleeping that five to six hours and how many people are actually achieving that eight hours. And ideally, that's continuous sleep. I mean, naps are good, but maybe not as good as continuous sleep. And there's so many issues that happen with, you know, frequent urination and sleep disordered breathing like sleep apnea, which disrupt that sleep. So really sort of a lot of plus our social media and our phones dinging and the dogs waking us up and all these sort of things that can trigger and worsen our sleep. But the ideal goal is to sleep between seven and nine hours per night. And just so we're clear, that's for adults. I have three small kids and I'm very aware that they need to sleep between nine and 11 hours per night. So we know that in studies that if you compare people who sleep a lot versus who sleep a little, and you know, we can get into the details if you'd like about how much they slept, but let's just say for ease, ease, the people who sleep in the normal range who, and those are people who are sleep deprived, the concentration is less. I mean, they even some, some studies and some editorials will correlate the lack of sleep to feeling like an alcoholic. You know, when you sleep, don't sleep enough, you almost have some of those alcohol related behaviors. So lack of sleep can trigger decreased concentration, agitation, it increases your cortisol levels, right? So when you don't sleep, your cortisol levels are higher, which makes you unable to lose weight, um, because you always want to eat and think about it. And when we're nervous, and we're anxious, what do most people eat, they comfort eat, they want to eat, they feel hungry all the time. Um, and despite that's just hormonal. And then just when you're up for that many hours, you eat more and often with poor habits. And so all of these behaviors that trigger decreased concentration and decreased ability to focus are all sort of part of the whole syndrome of ir body's irritation. Your bod body's mad at you. So remember, if your body's mad at you, try to fix it. So often people, you know, I see patients every day and they'll say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have control. I can't make those changes. I have to, I can't sleep that many hours. You know, you just work towards it. You know, suggestions that I often will give people is no social media, no electronics one hour prior to bed. And so people are like, whoa, that's really hard. Well, yeah, you know, because we're 
we've we've changed as a society in the past that wasn't so hard so what if you don't use your electronics for one hour before bed uh and then sort of using not doing exercise and not doing um things that stim or taking a shower in the evening which may wake you up and really saving those activities for the morning and then always having sleep rituals, which will help you, you know, massage or reading um, and deep breathing. So we do a lot of, I do a lot myself. I do a lot of four, seven, eight breathing, which is sort of to, to kind of calm your mind and calm your, you know, the people say, oh, I can't sleep because my mind is so active. Well, part of that is needing to become mindful and focus on that mindfulness aspect. Uh, and then when you work on those things, sleep improves and gosh, is it restorative? You know, we always sort of talk about the iPhone concept or your phone when your, your phone is at 3%, you're running around the house looking for a charger because your phone is going to die. But we don't do that for ourselves, right? When we are at 3%, we don't recharge. And so that's some of the imbalance issue is the fact that we just have so much sympathetic tone. And if I could, I'll just explain a little bit about that. So when we think about sympathetic, there's two nervous systems in our body. There's three or four, but the cons, there's the there's the autonomic nervous system. And then there's that, well, there's the sympathetic nervous system and there's the parasympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is called our fight or flight response. So it's the one that keeps our heart rate up, our blood pressure up. It keeps us going. Like you're being chased by somebody. You got to like run, run, run. So you, you're not thinking about urinating because all of those reflexes to urinate or feel hungry are completely switched off because you got to go. Your, your hearing is better. Your eyes or your vision is more acute. All of those things are appropriate to respond. And that's, that's, sympathetic overdrive. We like that. That's that's how you, if somebody's falling, you pick them up and catch them. That's how you run away from the tiger or run away from somebody who's chasing you. So we need those responses. But then there's the parasympathetic system, which is our rest and recovery or rest and digest. And what that does is that it says like, just like when the cheetah drive, runs 90 miles to catch a prey and then it sits and eats it and then it recovers and it sleeps for hours. And that recovery time allows your body to then oh, actually I have to urinate. Oh, I have to digest my food. Oh, it brings your heart rate down, your blood pressure down. And it allows you to see where your pains are and recover from your pain because in the sympathetic system, you don't actually feel pain as much. So imagine if we're not sleeping as much and we're always on and we're overstressed and you brought up that ICU doctor, we're constantly on. It's all sympathetic tone. Well, there's this imbalance then where you're high in sympathetic tone and there's no parasympathetic. So there's this imbalance. And so what happens is, is that your heart rate's up, your blood pressure's up, and it's always up. And it's always going, your heart rate's always up and your blood pressure is always up. Now I round in the ICU a lot. And I, when I round in the intensive care unit, I do notice that my heart rate is, I usually run a heart rate. I'm a runner in the forties to fifties. And in, when I run the round in the ICU for that seven or eight days in a row, my heart rate's seventies to eighties, even when I've sat down after rounding, because I'm just in this high sympathetic, um, tone, uh, time, um, which is a real problem is there's no time for recovery. When there is that imbalance between sympathetic and parasympathetic, we don't allow ourselves to recover. That's when we become a huge risk for inflammation. That is a huge difference. Uh, that is an enormous difference. That is very interesting. Yeah. Um, Dr. Rao, I want to ask you this question. Um, we're talking about sleep here. I want to stick with that for just a little bit. Uh, interrupted sleep. Sometimes a lot of people will wake up in the middle of the night. Like, ah, I'm a little bit hungry. Even I'm guilty of this from time <laughs> to time. And I'll get up like one, two o'clock in the morning get, you know, quick glass of water, but then I'll also eat something like an orange or some pineapple, you know, supposedly healthy food, but well, not supposedly, I mean, it is healthy food, but what is that doing to the body at that hour when uh, we're supposed to be asleep? I mean, we're programmed to be asleep at that point and being awake at two o'clock in the morning and eating pineapple is about as unnatural as it gets. No, absolutely. No, that's a great question. I think part you had you, one big thing that you also said about that that was important was broken sleep. You know, restorative sleep is really what we're talking about for seven to nine hours. If you are, you know, getting up every every two hours to get up and go to the bathroom, you reset your cycle and you can't go through all the phases of sleep and REM and do that four or five times through the night in order to get restorative sleep. And that's the end goal. So anything that keeps you up at night or wakes you up, we need to kind of shut down. And, and it's a self, it's kind of a self-propagating cycle. So 
What happens also is that we are naturally more insulin sensitive in the morning. So our hormone of insulin and our resistance to insulin increases as the day goes on. And there's been studies to show if I had the same amount of calories in the morning versus the same amount of calories in the evening, there's an increased weight accumulation if you were to eat that same amount and the same exact food in the evening after sunset because our bodies are built around the circadian rhythm. So one issue is it throws off our insulin resistance. So we are much more, um, we have a higher risk of keeping higher sugars when we start eating later. Uh, but also when we wake up in the middle of the night when we're not supposed to be eating, it throws off all our other hormones that control satiety, like ghrelin, and our cortisol is higher first thing in the morning, our blood pressure is higher, so our sugars are higher. So if you don't sleep that way, you're waking up with a higher sugar point as opposed to something like 10% or 11% increased if you have unrestored sleep, which then propagates that cycle of increased hunger, high sugars, higher insulin, higher insulin means you are going to deposit fat more, then you're going to have it, more cravings because you can go like this. Sometimes when your sugar curve goes up and down, we go from hyperglycemic to hypoglycemic and we start craving sugar and then that cycle keeps going. So what, what you've said is we're setting ourselves up for climbing a mountain. It is very hard to get out of that hole what our goal should be is to go to sleep, not eat after sunset or like maybe after seven or eight o'clock at night maximum. Try to get at least a 12 hour fast. Don't eat in the middle of the night because it sets us up for success. The harder we fight that, the more we're getting snacking at night, the more we're getting up at night to snack, it's going to propagate the cycle. So the, the answer is really to try to just cut it out. And you cut it out by, you know, not snacking at night. And so that that 10 o'clock, you know, ice cream or chocolate chip cookie maybe the reason we're getting up in a couple of hours and craving food again. So it really is important to be more preventive in this aspect because yes, it's a very dangerous pathway to come down. Our sleep is critical to our hormone balance and as our insulin and our cortisol and our ghrelin start to manage, you know, they start to go crazy and they start to spiral downward and we start to dig ourselves into a little bit of a hole there. What advice would you then have for somebody who works against the circadian rhythm and has a shift that's midnight to eight o'clock in the morning? Um, what can they do to get their body as balanced as possible, uh, Dr. Rao? Is there anything that they can do? Or yeah, they can I, mean, I think, I think as, you know, given the circumstance that some people must have, you know, they, we all can't do everything that's possible for our, the betterment of our health and we have to have jobs and we have to live our lives. Um, I think that those people are, it's very important for people who have the midnight shift to try to do all those other things to keep their body healthy and restored. So when they are eating, uh, you know, whole food, plant-based diet, when they're trying to get the exercise, when they can, when they're doing their meditation, I love meditation and yoga. I, I view sometimes meditation as kind of a cheat because when I'm feeling very exhausted, tired, I feel like I need a nap. Sometimes meditating for five or 10 minutes will just wake me up and kind of get me back into doing doing a yoga pose now and then like a forward fold or a down dog or just a couple, you know, for a few minutes up to a 30 seconds to a minute will recharge you. And so what you want to do is kind of make the other things in the book that we talk about more, you know, incorporate that more because you cannot do the one sleep thing that you that you need to do. And that's okay. I don't think that you're going to necessarily break down. It's just if that pattern is consistent also with eating bad foods, being having a sedentary life, you know, having um, all, all these other issues that are coming up that are negative as well. That's when you really are going to have a problem with your health. I think I think one or two things we can manage based on the other aspects of our lifestyle. And that's what we wanted to focus on this book is that you can achieve success through many pathways. Yes, diet is very, very important, 80%. But you can also get um, to goals that you are not able to achieve for whatever reason, um, like your job and your job requirements by doing things like yoga and meditating and maybe sitting on a ball when you are working, when you move more, you know, make sure that you're eating um, nutrient, high nutrient foods, maybe drinking green tea instead of eight cups of coffee, you know, things that are going to be more healthier for you uh, may offset some of the damage done by not being able to sleep. Uh, that is the perfect segue. Uh, Dr. Agarwal, I was going to ask you about the importance of hydration. So uh, thank you for the green tea there, Dr. Rao. Um, water, is that theoretically like pouring water on gasoline to extinguish the flames? In this case, it's water extinguishing inflammation. Is it that critical? 
Well, I don't know if it's, so yes, is it that critical? Yes, if for many things. Is it as easy as drink water, calm inflammation? I don't know the answer to that. I, I would say that drinking water has so many important benefits. I mean, think about uh, how it, they, it it's the job of the water is to flush, you know, it flushes out. And so it flushes out your kidneys, It then you know, and that's very important. The kidneys, when you get more water, more, more goes to the kidneys, which then filters out your blood. Um, and so the job of water is to keep hydrated, which improves your kidney function, improves the, the cells, it improves your skin turgor. It's good for your hair. Uh, you know, how much should you drink? Um, well, you know, people ask me that a lot. And I don't know if we know the answer to that. There's a common set. What's commonly said is eight glasses a day. But, you know, the truth is that's based on no studies. I mean, we've looked that up to kind of understand it. And it probably is a good number, but I'm not 100% sure that some people don't need 10 glasses and some people don't need six. And so often you can use your urine as a way, if you're urinating every two hours, that's a good thing. But here's the rub. Uh, caffeine products, especially coffee and teas, they will, and, ca and uh, sodas, they will trigger you. It has, they have diuretic effect, meaning they make you pee even when you're not hydrated. So green tea and, and coffee uh, have loads of antioxidant effects. That's true. Um, but they uh, also are dehydrating and they definitely don't take the place of water. Um, just think about your stool. If you don't drink enough water, or there's not enough water in your stool and you can become constipated. So there are, there are many benefits to drinking water. Should you drink water? Yes. Should you drink more water? Yes. Should you uh, watch your urine. Yes. Uh, one of the things you can look at is the color of your urine. If you're urinating frequently, um, you should have, you know, lighter color, light yellow urine versus sort of dark and tea colored urine, which would could be suggestive of uh, poor hydration. So those are things to kind of keep in mind um, that are really important in terms of water. I had a gastroenterologist on the show recently, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, and he oh, yeah. was telling me that he loves his coffee, but he makes sure that before he has his first cup of the day, that he has two glasses of water, and then he yeah. will balance that throughout the day. You're not you're not saying don't drink coffee, don't drink tea. No. Just make sure that you're getting that's water exactly on top right. Of that. Yeah, I mean, I drink a lot of green tea myself. I I don't. I'm not fond of coffee, although uh, there are lots of studies that show that uh, drinking coffee is not bad. And if, if it's what we do to the coffee that ruins it, right? If we drink milk and sugar with it, that's sabotaging the coffee. But if you drink black coffee and you're drinking about the same amount of coffee every day, um, overall, there are no ne no significant negatives and probably a lot of positives. And so uh, in terms of the antioxidant effects, now green tea, people off, should you drink green tea or coffee? Well, I often tell people, if you can drink coffee black, then drink coffee. And if, if you like it, if you like green tea better, you know, I don't like to sweat the small stuff. Both of them are really high in antioxidants. I personally like green tea. So I drink a lot of that and I drink it unadulterated. Again, no sugars, no uh, milk. Uh, and both of those are very good. But yes, you do have to balance it out with your water intake. And so I always sort of give generally a rule of drinking one to two glasses of water per glass of tea. So yes, are you in the bathroom a lot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had the green tea with the toasted rice in it? That oh, is it's heavenly. My favorite. That's it my is favorite tea. Heavenly. Oh my oh god, my it's goodness. so good. I uh, it. And then if you add a little turmeric to that, you get that anti-inflammatory effect. So I drink green tea with turmeric. My husband makes it for me every morning. I'm super spoiled, I know. And so uh Rob makes it for me every day um and puts the green the turmeric in because turmeric is a potent anti-inflammatory spice and as a patient who has rheumatoid arthritis, I'm very aware of my joints. And I drink uh, turmeric every day. How much uh, turmeric are, are we talking here? Well, it depends, you know, so I am quite adapted to drinking turmeric. And so turmeric is very, very bitter. And so for somebody who's a novice or never, who's never really had turmeric uh, powder, I would start really little, like, uh, you know, sometimes even a few drops or um, a, a quarter teaspoon, that kind of thing. You can add a little black pepper to it to increase the absorption. I do that sometimes. It changes my feeling in my tea, so I don't always add that. But in general, you want to add black pepper because it increases the absorption of the tea, I mean, of the turmeric. Um, but I add 
add that to my tea. Um, now I can drink a lot more than that. Um, and because I've been drinking it for so long, there is probably a too much. I mean, there are some case reports of gallstones with too high amounts of turmeric, um, and some liver issues, but these are people who are drinking, um, uh, who are taking lots of supplements often of turmeric. And those are not people who are eating it in their diet. Remember the Indian culture is based on this spice. I mean, I grow, I live in Florida, so I have the benefit of loads of warm temperatures. So I must have, I don't know, 15 turmeric plants in my backyard, which we're going to harvest uh, in the next week or two. Um, and, you know, loads of turmeric. I, I call it my gold. It is, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. I drink it all the time. I highly recommend it as a potent anti-inflammatory spice. There are some studies, um, not great ones, but there's some small studies of humans uh, where they compare uh, Celebrex, which is an anti-inflammatory medication or other NSAIDs like Motrin, Ibuprofen, those kind of are anti-inflammatories uh, that you take. And if you compare it to turmeric, there's some data that shows that the benefits were equal. Um, again, small studies, not the best. I agree, all of those things. But I always tell people, again, if there's some potential good and not any real significant harm, why wouldn't you? That is some serious tea right there. I mean, you have scared me. That is some very serious tea right there. Yeah, don't very mess with seriously. my tea. That's, that's no. serious tea. <laughs> um, Dr. Brown, let's talk about some other spices. We just heard about the uh, wonderful effects of turmeric, but what are some other spices that you would recommend to people to try to quash that? Yeah, and also, um, Monica and I love talking about spices. Uh, one of the reasons I got into this field of kind of integrative medicine was I had a patient um, young patient with hypertension and his wife came in and this was before I kind of had any knowledge about nutrition, probably around 10 years ago. And we basically, he, the wife looked at me and said, you know, if you don't want my husband to eat salt, what is it that I can add to flavor the food? Because, you know, we don't know what to put in our food. And it was, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I had no answer for that. And so spices are the answer. And so using spices, because they're so powerful, as I researched more of it, that was actually one of the first cooking classes that I had a cooking class at my home for physicians, um, in order for us all to learn about spices. That's how Monica and I actually started talking about the book, because we both were thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to get this information out to the public about what else you can use instead of salt. Um, so I am very passionate about spices as well as Monica, but I wanted to comment on the water for a second because I have a yogi tea recipe that's really amazing for a fluid hydration, whether it's, you know, in the morning in, in lieu of coffee or tea or just as a wonderful pick me up. It has uh, black pepper and turmeric in it. It has ginger, cardamom and cloves. Cloves are the strongest antioxidant spice out there. They're one of the most, one of the most powerful foods we have um, for antioxidants. And so spices, we forget, they're in the closet, we forget to pull them out. So I encourage people to get all these little spice, you know, put them in little bottles, put them out on your, where you're cooking. So you can just kind of, you know, put them in. Most recently, I asked someone to use, say, fennel, seeds for um, premenstrual syndrome, saffron for depression, for premenstrual syndrome, there's cinnamon for controlling your sugar balance. You know, there's so many roles for these spices and um, we are just kind of obsessed with them in general. Um, you know, part of the thing when they talk about, you know, different diets, say the Mediterranean diet is one of the things that's important is the spices they used in the Mediterranean diet, which we hardly ever talk about when we talk about the studies and all of that. The true Mediterranean diet does involve, you know, garlic and marjoram and um, different spices, rosemary, that are hugely important for when we when we cook. And so if we're excluding those things, we're not getting the full package of what we can do with our meals. And we do have a medicine chest in our cabinet for many, many ailments. Uh, turmeric, for example, is very useful uh, for any sort of cuts. You know, if I have a cut, I kind of put topical turmeric on there and it heals very quickly. It's an antibacterial. There's there's loads of data coming out on the senolytics of turmeric, which means like an anti-aging potential, um, you know, trying to get our cells to age better uh, with, a, with a part of the turmeric. And so other spices are also been implicated in, in terms of the studies that have said they have some role. So it's an exciting time to be using spices. I think our, our lack of kind of ability to try to use them as a medicine, if you will, you know, they can serve a lot of purposes. Um, another thing is clove is great for teeth pain. Um, we use uh, another spice, um, 
asafoetida can help with um, gas and bloating that you can add to meals. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of areas like symptoms, symptomology wise that you can maybe use. And, you know, for a cough, you can use a different spice. And so it's, it's very valuable to know a little bit about all these spices so that you can use them for even not just cooking, but also for ailments that happen. As we kind of wrap things up here, I'm curious, Dr. Rao, if a patient comes to you and says, what are the top three spices that I absolutely have to have in my pantry? What would your answer be? So definitely turmeric, number one, two, and three. Um, cinnamon's right up there with all the data, with all the prediabetes out there, the insulin resistance. Cinnamon's wonderful for PCOS, metabolic syndrome. Um, and the third one would be um, really, I think, a toss-up. Um, I don't know, Monica, what, what do you think is our third one? I, I like, I like so many of them. Um, I probably, I, I, I would say that I really like pomegranate powder because I like the vasodilation, um, the dilation of the blood vessel benefits from that. I like garlic because of the antibacterial benefits. Um, I like cumin. I like mango powder. So this is like three going on 10. Um, it's really hard to come to just three. <laughs> that's the hard part. I know. And then rosemary. What about rosemary? Because, you know, that's a hugely, uh, you know, they've, there's neat little studies on on rosemary. And if you put that, you know, we know that people are always grilling all the time and it creates all those carcinogenic uh, carcinogenic potential when you grill and char things. Just adding rosemary sort of decreases that um, risk. And so, uh, rosemary is another potent one. Um, so yeah, all of those things, I mean, I could keep going on holy basil, yeah. <laughs> oregano. Really, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of benefit with just, you know, every single one has so many powerful anti-inflammatory antioxidant benefits. I feel like we could continue this discussion forever uh, because it strikes me that you guys are as passionate about this as anyone I've ever spoken to. Oh, and I love that. You're you're knowledgeable. You're passionate about it. You're happy to share this advice. And frankly, you're helping me formulate my next grocery list. So thank you. <laughs> and your next cup of tea. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I'm, I, I, man, believe me, I've got plenty of turmeric downstairs. I've got the black pepper. But I'm going to have to baby step it because, like I said, that is some serious tea that you're promoting there. Yes, exactly. That's why I always tell patients, look, I have drank, I, I drink a lot of turmeric, but you have to really build up. So really start with a couple of just like a, literally a quarter teaspoon is all you want to add. And then add a little to your beans and add some to your lentils. And then you're going to start developing the taste for it. And then you're going to be like me, just you ate. A great thing to add it to right now is your soups you know, nutmeg and cinnamon and, and they're just, they just, and paprika, they'll just change the entire soup. Um, it'll be amazing to add those. I love that. Have fun with your spice pantry this weekend. Um, yeah. the, the book is Body on Fire. Thank you both very much for being here, Dr. Monica Agarwal and Dr. Jyothi Rao. You, you two are just the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate being here. If you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, Body on Fire, we've included a link to do that in the episode notes. What a fun and interesting conversation there. All about inflammation. I cannot wait to speak with them again. They definitely will be back on the show in the future. You know, speaking of inflammation, I had the opportunity recently to speak with Dr. Neil Barnard about that and inflammation's tie specifically to COVID-19. And this came up after someone wrote into our sister show, The Exam Room Live, and they were wondering about an anti-inflammatory plant-based diet and its ties to the virus. We've got a great question from Kenneth, wants to know if someone is overweight but begins eating a clean plant-based diet overnight, will their risk for COVID come down automatically and rapidly simply because their diet isn't so inflammatory anymore? Um, that's a terrific question and we hope so. Um, but we're talking about several things happening at the same time. First of all, your question is, is great in that if a person is concerned about COVID, doing a completely plant-based diet today, now, this minute, and sticking with it is a really good idea because body fat cells express the ACE2 receptor that's the welcome mat by which the virus enters the body. So if you can contract your body fat volume, that's a really good thing to do. That also means that your insulin resistance or even diabetes, if it's come that far, is likely to improve too. And that is 
um, money in the bank when it comes to repelling the uh, COVID complications. So all of that, all of those are good. But your implicit in your question is how soon will I be safer? And there we don't really have the answer. What we know now is that people who are in the healthy BMI range do dramatically better than people who are overweight or particularly people who are in the obese category. Um, the sooner we move across those categories, the better, but how soon those benefits kick in, we'll have to see. Uh, and finally, uh, your question about the inflammation. That's for real. Uh, when people go on a plant-based diet, the inflammation in their body diminishes. And by inflammation, what I mean is your white blood cells are constantly creating compounds that get into your bloodstream to try to attack viruses and, and, and so forth, uh, other pathogens. And those compounds create an inflammatory uh, environment that, that uh, really does encourage um, lots of problems to manifest, both physically and mentally. And that process will change very rapidly when a person goes on a plant-based diet. So the answer to that part of your question is yes, the inflammation will calm down quite quickly. And you can check out that full episode over on YouTube or on Facebook. And we spent a good chunk of that show also talking about a new study comparing COVID-19 and the flu, a head-to-head -head analysis with fresh data. And in terms of the risk that it poses to your health, it's really not much of a comparison at all. Another interesting part of that discussion was how Dr. Barnard was speaking about one of COVID-19's weird symptoms or effects, I should say, in that it can cause diabetes in someone who had been perfectly healthy before they became infected. So if you want to check out that full episode, you can go ahead and click on the link in the episode notes right now. And for today, that is all the time that we have. I want to say thank you one more time to the authors of the phenomenal book, Body on Fire, Drs. Monica Agarwal and Jyothi Rao. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.